everyone. I'm Dave McCreary. Welcome to the Journal Club podcast for the month of June. So due to either a Zoom gremlin or the wonder that is the Australian National Broadband Network, Bertha's introduction to the podcast got a bit lost in the ether, so you're just hearing from me for this bit instead. In this month's podcast, our senior registrar for research, Bertha Wu, is joined by emergency physician and PhD candidate, Dr. Rob Mitchell, and as always, our academic director, Professor Peter Cameron. They've got three papers this month. First, they'll have a paper looking at delays in inpatient admission from the ED and the association with risk of death. Then they'll be looking at stroke risk associated with anti-dopaminergic antiemetic use. And then yet another paper looking at multi-slice CT for the exclusion of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So without further ado, it's over to the team for your first paper. Paper one. So paper one is titled Association Between Delays to Patient Admission from the Emergency Department and All-Course 30-Day Mortality. It was published earlier this year by Jones S. et al. The clinical question asked was, do delays to inpatient admission from EDs increase the risk of death? It's a cross-sectional retrospective observational study. All patients admitted from every major ED in England between April 2016 and March 2018 were included in the study. Only a patient's first admission in the study period was included, and patients who waited in the ED for longer than 12 hours were excluded. The exposure that they looked at was the time admitted patients spent in ED up to 12 hours after arrival. Times were measured from the patient's arrival at the ED until their transfer to an inpatient bed. And the outcome measure was death from all causes within 30 days of admission. So what were the findings? Between April 2016 and March 2018, 26,738,514 people attended in ED, with 7,472,480 patients admitted. 5,249,891 individual patients' data was included in the study, a total of 433,962 deaths occurred within 30 days. The overall crude mortality rate was 8.71%. Patients on average spent five hours in ED, and of the admitted patients, 38% breached the four-hour rule, and this was used as a proxy for ED crowding. And this is a variable with the largest odds ratio of 1.35. Patients with lower socioeconomic status were also found to have larger odds ratio. The authors found that standardised mortality rate for patients admitted to hospital was increased after five hours, and there is also a dose-dependent association between time in excess of five hours in the ED for admitted patients and all-cause mortality. There is also a 10% increase in the standard mortality rates within 30 days for admitted patients remaining in ED between 8 to 12 hours in comparison with those who leave the ED within six hours. So the authors concluded that delays to hospital inpatient admission for patients in excess of five hours from time of arrival to the ED are associated with an increase in all-course 30-day mortality. So Peter, this paper is quite relevant to our now post-pandemic healthcare system. Um, What are your thoughts on this study? Well, it, it sort of adds to the literature from the last 15 to 20 years showing that there is an association between overcrowding, delays to admission, delays to treatment and mortality. The numbers are, are huge and, I mean, the bigger numbers don't necessarily make it any more valid, I mean, but it is consistent with previous literature. The number of one patient dying for every 82 admitted patients seems quite high, although it is consistent with previous estimates. It's interesting they picked a six to eight hour 
time threshold, which again is consistent with previous literature. The main concern, I think, at a methodological level is at a, at a sort of clinical level, we know that the patients who get left behind are the old people, the disadvantaged people, the confused, complex people, all the easy ones like, uh, you know, straightforward STEMIs, need to go to theatre, traumas, strokes, all those sort of things get, you know, they get a pretty good deal, even in chaos. But the complex, messy patients, especially the older patients who are most likely to die, you know, when you think about it, they're the ones as a group that make up the majority of deaths. Uh, in our system. They're the ones that get left behind. And I guess it's no surprise that they're also the ones that suffer the most in, in this sort of complex environment. You know, I don't think it adds anything. Um, it's just another study in a line of other, other studies that show an association. Oh, come on, Peter, give me a bit of <laughs> But it, 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 it is consistent. And I guess it, it helps our narrative that it's harmful uh, for patients to spend long times in emergency departments, which I don't think any emergency physician would disagree with. Yeah, I mean, I think Peter's right on the money with his closing comments then. I mean, this I think this confirms what we all intuitively know to be true, mm. which is if you are stuck in the emergency department, uh, waiting access to an inpatient bed, you are at increased risk of harm. And in fact, one of the things I really like about this paper is they detail the possible uh, mechanisms through which patients who do have a prolonged ED length of stay uh, do suffer harm. And, you know, one thing that I don't say explicitly, but, you know, has been my observation over many years is that just relates to a lack of ownership of these patients. Because like we're emergency clinicians, we have short attention attention spans. So I'll say this in inverted commas, we, we lose interest in these patients to some extent. And don't misinterpret what I'm saying there, but we, we, we have other demands for our time. You know, there are constantly new patients coming in the door. So naturally, our attention turns to, to managing those new patients. But if the patient is physically in the emergency department, there's a disincentive for inpatient units to actively manage this patients to work through those complex diagnostic and therapeutic challenges that Peter was um, was talking about. I mean, I mean, kudos to them. They have attempted to um, control for those confounders with the logistic regression model that they use. But, you know, as, as we, we all know and has been spoken about on the podcast many times, this is the challenge of observational research is that you just can't control for all of those uh, possible confounders. And, you know, that, that nuance, those that complexity that might exist in individual patient presentation, which just isn't captured in the in the medical record. So well, I absolutely agree with uh, Peter's um, reflections on the methodological limitations here is that there are unspecified reasons why some of these more complex patients might spend longer periods of time in the emergency department and might have a, a higher mortality. That said, I think the principle um, remains true. This is concordant with previous research on this subject and, and, and really echoes actually a paper that Peter Jones, a different Jones in New Zealand, um, you know, published not so long ago from, from our Australian-New Zealand context, which essentially attested the same thing, that if you get stuck in the emergency department through access uh, block or exit block, depending on what term you want to use, you are at uh, a relatively high risk of harm. And so do you know what the average patient waiting time in ED is now? Um, I know it's really bad, but um, what's the number? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we all realise that it's suboptimal. I mean, I mean that figure is, is very much going to depend on the particular context you're working on, your particular yeah. department, your particular hospital. Uh, but this seems to be a, a universal phenomenon that, you know, particularly 
in the kind of immediately post-lockdown period. Demand for emergency uh, care increases. There are lots of potential reasons for that. One is through, um, you know, delayed care, the kind of pent-up demand for health care that hasn't been addressed uh, through the pandemic and through lockdowns. The net result of that is that demand for emergency care is high. And at the same time, there's a, a very high burden on the healthcare system, and particularly in inpatient beds. You know, COVID patients obviously consume a proportion of those still. But in addition, you know, access to community services is still challenging, which, you know, which makes it challenging to discharge many patients from the hospital to, to community care. All of that means that, you know, the EDs uh, are increasingly crowded and uh, there are uh, more and more delays to accessing inpatient beds. Sorry, long answer. But if you're thinking about the six hours that they talk about uh, is 360 minutes, the median time is more like about 500 minutes in 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 most departments or, or longer. Uh, and that means that more than 50% of people are spending longer than that time in the ED. So if, if we think six to eight hours is the threshold for harm, then we're not meeting it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, nice, nicely put, Peter. In fact, you know, on any given day, I suspect in most emergency departments across Australia, New Zealand, the list, a large proportion of patients who are being admitted to the hospital will fall into this at-risk category. Yeah, this is no good. And I know there's a lot of discussion between emergency physicians about what the solution can be, but um, I don't know whether there's an answer yet. So, <laughs> Just, just one other comment. Uh, yeah. Rob was being a little bit soft, I think. <laughs> the, no change there, Peter. Uh, the reality is the demand is not that great. It feels like there's a high demand, but actually the numbers are not that much higher. They're just consistent with the trend for the last 10 years. And what's happened is there's been closures of inpatient beds, inefficiencies in the inpatient system to the extent that the patients can't go to the wards. So a lot of that's to do with, you know, COVID sickness and all sorts of things going on. But at the end of the day, it's not so much the patient demand as the organisation of our system. And so it gets down to leadership and it gets down to organisation and it gets down to culture. And they're things that we can influence without more money. It is about, you know, uh, organisation within the system. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the long-standing <laughs> rhetoric here is that, you know, access block is not an emergency department problem. It's, it's a whole of hospital, it's a whole of system uh, problem, which of course is is true. But, you know, we are the ones that bear the brunt of this. We are the ones that bear witness to the adverse effects that come about through um, exit or access block. So as Peter says, I mean, our, our ongoing challenge is to continue to advocate for our patients, continue to advocate for systems improvements that, you know, promote efficient flow through the hospital so that the patients get the care they need, where they need it and when they need it. All very good points. Thank you, Peter and Rob. So now we move on to our second paper. Paper two. So paper two is titled Risk of First Ischemic Stroke and Use of Antidopaminergic Antiemetics Nationwide Case Time Control Study. This paper was published this year by Bernard Larabier A. et al. The clinical question was, does the use of antidopaminergic antiemetics, which I'll call ADA from now, increase the risk of first stroke? It's a case time control study and eligible participants were all patients registered on the French Health Insurance Database, which contains information on at least 99% of the French population and where reimbursements to outpatients for dispensed drugs can be found. They included patients who were greater than 18 years old, had a diagnosis of first ischemic stroke between 2012 and 2016, had no history of cerebrovascular disease, 
and had at least one reimbursement for the ADAs studied, which worked on peridone, metopimazine, and metoclopramide in the 70 days before stroke. They excluded patients who had a history of cancer and had hospital admission in the observation period. The two arms of the study are the case group, which are participants who had first ischemic stroke during the study period, and the exposure time trend control group, which are participants who didn't have an ischemic stroke. Controls were recruited at the same time as the patients with stroke to take into the account of time trend of ADA use, for example, natural increase or decrease use of ADA over time. This study looked at the two groups' exposure to the studied ADAs over four periods, days minus 14 to minus 1 before the stroke, which they call the risk period, and days minus 70 to minus 57, minus 56 to 43, and minus 42 to minus 29 before the stroke, which they call reference periods. The outcome they looked at was association between ADA use and the risk of ischemic stroke. And this was assessed by estimating the ratio of the odds ratios of exposure evaluated in patients with stroke and in controls. So what did the authors find? Amongst 2,600 patients with incident stroke, 1,250 received an ADA in the risk period and 1,060 in the reference periods. The comparison with 5,128 and 13,165 in the respective controls who received an ADA in the same periods gave a ratio of adjusted odd ratio of 3.12. Analysis was stratified by age, sex, and history of dementia, showed similar results. Ratio of adjusted odds ratio for analysis stratified by ADA was 2.51 for domperidone, 3.62 for metapimazine, and 3.53 for metoclopramide. Sensitivity analysis suggested that the risk will be higher in the first days of use. So the authors concluded that there is an increased risk of ischemic stroke with recent ADA use, and the highest increase was found for metopimazine and metoclopramide. So this is a very interesting study design um, that had quite complicated patient recruitment and statistical analysis. And I think in the journal club, the um, consensus was that this was the case and everyone took a few times to read through the paper to understand what they were doing. Do you, like a lot of us had to look up what case time control study is. Do you think you can just briefly tell us what is a case time control study, um, Peter, and why did the authors use it in this particular study? Yeah, it's not, not a um, technique that I'm familiar with. Basically, what they've done is they've used the cases as their own control. And it's a complex uh, statistical analysis with massive numbers, <laughs> uh, which sort of is, is, is mind boggling and beyond my statistical capability. But uh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that, Peter. Uh, <laughs> but, makes me feel so much better. <laughs> but the bottom line is they've used the cases as their own controls and, and looked at the time periods to, to see whether the exposure to the dopamine antagonist was was uh, a risk factor for the stroke. I, I think what you can say is that it's a massive database and it's a complex statistical technique, but it has limitations of association that we've, we've discussed, uh, studies that show association. It had about 2,800 patients with their first stroke, which is a large number of strokes. And they used only oral medications. Uh, they didn't include um, IV medications. So just at a sort of clinical, you know, intuitive type level, I would have thought that if there was an effect from these drugs, it would be more likely from an IV 
use. However, they didn't include that. I think mainly for methodological reasons, it's more difficult given that it'd be in hospital mostly in hospital and difficult to dock, you know, it wouldn't be on the same database. So I think that was the main reason they didn't include that. You know, just sort of clinically, intuitively giving someone five or 10 milligrams of Maxillon or, or similar and whether that's going to cause a stroke, it it sort of seems a little, uh, you know, to me, it, it doesn't necessarily pass the pub test or the sniff test. The second thing that I think is most important here is why were they getting these drugs? Presumably they weren't well. So, you know, you don't just go up to the doctor and they give you metoclopramide. You, you have to have something wrong. Now, they must have had symptoms of nausea or vomiting or something or gastrointestinal symptoms. And so they may well have had uh, the symptoms, the prodromal symptoms of a posterior stroke. Uh, so that's one thing. Or they may have had an illness, a significant illness, which precipitated a stroke. So, you know, if you've got an old person with severe gastro gets dehydrated, then they're more likely to have a stroke. So what we might have here is a, effectively an association between metoclopramide and sickness, which leads to stroke or is a prodrome for stroke. So I don't know how to interpret this study other than to say it's interesting, an interesting association, but it doesn't really convince me at a biological or at a clinical level that there is a, a, a strong association which should stop me using uh, metoclopramide uh, or dopamine antagonists uh, orally for patients. As I say, it's sort of interesting, an interesting technique and interesting association, but certainly not strong enough to stop me using metoclopramide. How about you, Rob? What are your thoughts? Is it going to change your practice, this paper? Uh, short answer is no, but it is hypothesis generating. Like Peter, I, I would like to know more about the kind of biological mechanisms, you know, through which uh, this link or um, association could theoretically occur. And like the paper is interesting in terms of they they reference some potential mechanisms, but it's really all just postulated at this point in time. So I guess it, it, this is the way my simple brain works, that I, I like to understand the biological mechanism through which a potential association can exist. I, I guess that... Um, gives it potentially gives it more uh, credibility validity in my own mind i was really interested in, in peter's um you know reflections here on on potential confounders particularly around this so-called protopathic bias which i've got to be honest was, was something that i that it was a term that i was not familiar with conceptually i understood it so this this is where you you you're administered a, a treatment in effect for early symptoms of the disease with which the treatment is subsequently associated so you know just to expand on on what Peter was saying there, you know, you might have someone, for instance, who has a posterior a foster event, posterior stroke, you know, they might have some, some nausea associated with that. So they, they're given a dose of metoclopramide and then subsequently uh, it's investigated and someone postulates a link between the metoclopramide and the emergence of the uh, posterior foster stroke. In fact, it was the event that came first. So look, I guess most people, Peter, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on this, Bertha too. I suspect that most people aren't using, um, you know, metoclopramide in particular as a first-line antimedic. You know, we we tend to use the um, 5-HT3 receptor antagonist like on Dancitron in the first instance. So I, I guess from that point of view, this this really won't change my practice because uh, it's it's not my first-line antiemetic. Um, but something for us all, I guess, to um, to bear in the back of my mind when we're making these individual risk-benefit um, decisions on an individual patient basis. 
I think uh, on that point of first line, for migraines, I probably would use metoclopramide as a, a first line yeah. uh, because uh, of known effects. And maybe in some gastrointestinal situations where you might want to improve motility. Yeah, uh, gastric emptying, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, if if you go to the triage desk, you say you got nausea, you'll generally get uh, a lamsopine these days. Oh, oh sorry. On, on oh, that sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah, might get a as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we know Peter operates at the cutting edge. <laughs> These are the pearls we come here for. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, so Rob, but I... After they've had the olanzapine, no one, no one complains of nausea anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, I use all, um, Ondansetron as a first line as well, Rob. So, yeah, um, it would be nice if they actually studied olanzapine. I mean, oh God, <laughs> it'll be nice if I actually studied on Dantatron. <laughs> not, not an alcohol swab. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. a discussion for another day. <laughs> okay, um, so let's move on to the third paper then. Paper three. The third paper is titled Sensitivity of Modern Multislice CT for Saparagnon Hemorrhage at Incremental Time Points After Headache Onset, a 10-Year Analysis. It was published in November 2021 by Vincent A. et al. The clinical question was, is it possible to extend the time frame from headache onset within which modern multi-slice CT can be used to rule out aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage? It's a single-centre retrospective cohort study. Patients who had diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage presenting to Christchurch Hospital between 2007 and 2017 were included. They excluded patients who had traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage had repeated subarachnoid hemorrhage admissions during the study time period, had subarachnoid hemorrhage found on post-mortem in whom no multi-slice CT was performed, where the day of onset of headache was not recorded, and patients who were transferred from another hospital to a Christchurch hospital. The exposure was imaging with multi-slice CT of the head. The primary outcome looked at was the proportion of patients with spontaneous aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage that had a positive multi-slice CT. And the secondary outcome looked at was a proportion of patients with any type of spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage that had a positive multi-slice CT. So what were the findings? Out of 347 patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, 260 had an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Multi-slice CT identified 97.3% of all aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and 95.7% of all subarachnoid hemorrhages. And of the 15 patients, i.e. 2.7% of patients not identified with multi-slice CT, seven of them, 47% of them were aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages and that were subsequently diagnosed with subarachnoid hemorrhage using a combination of LP and or MRI. Coroner's mortality database was examined as well and they found there were no sudden deaths with subarachnoid hemorrhage where patients had a recent related ED presentation where a head multi-slice CT was performed. There were 224 patients where the time of headache onset was not recorded. Of these, onset was the same day as arrival in the ED in 66% of patients. And for these patients, the time of headache onset was imputed as 30 minutes prior to arrival time for analysis to maximize the number of early false negatives. And for patients with headache onset during the preceding day, a time of 23.59 was imputed for analysis. At 24 hours after headache onset, the sensitivity of multi-slice CT for aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage was 100%. At 48 hours after headache onset, the sensitivity of multi-slice CT was 99.6% for aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and 99% for all subarachnoid hemorrhage. 
The sensitivity for multi-slice CT for all subarachnoid hemorrhage decreased as time to multi-slice CT increased. So the authors concluded that it may be possible to extend the time frame from headache onset within which modern multi-slice CT can be used to rule out aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So Rob, what do you think about the study findings? Uh, well, I always like reading studies that support what I do on the shop floor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is highly convenient. <laughs> I mean, kudos to the authors here. It, it like it is a, a huge, you know, effort to put together uh, this type of study. And yes, it has, um, you know, limitations of um, being ret- retrospective uh, in nature, and and you know, primarily based off uh, medical record data. But it, it still is, you know, really, really useful. I think, and and I guess fits among a broader body of of evidence that suggests as CT technology has improved, the sensitivity for the detection of subarachnoid hemorrhage, particularly aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, has correspondingly uh, increased. So yes, there are some limitations here, uh, including the fact that it is a single centre study, but this kind of supports what I think a lot of emergency clinicians are doing, which is accepting that to a reasonable time frame. We'll, we'll talk about what that actually means in a moment. The sensitivity of CT for detection of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage is actually extremely good. And so the number of patients who would benefit from a lumbar puncture is rapidly uh, dwindling. You know, this is kind of reminiscent of the time that that 2011 Perry study was released, which I'm sure, you know, you and and Peter remember. I mean, that that was probably one of the most influential or practice-changing papers that's been released in my practicing career because the the adaptation of, of that was so rapid because it was convenient with what we all wanted to do, which was avoid lumbar puncture wherever possible, because it's it's good for patients and it's good for clinicians, I think, if we if we can avoid it and it's not indicated. So this paper feeds into the shared decision-making approach that we can take with patients, whereby on an individual basis, based on the pretest probability, we can have a discussion with the patient about the ability of a lumbar puncture to influence, um, influence their care. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, just one small problem. Rob, the neurologist didn't get the memo. (laughs) (laughs) For the neurosurgeons. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's, you know, I think it's a nice little study, single centre, all the problems associated with, you know, 10-year studies, single centre, small numbers, you know, 260 aneurysmal subarachnoids over 10 years or something. And also the changing diagnostics over that time. So ranging from three millimetre slices to seven millimetre slices and then the reconstruct. You know, if you look at the images we get now, they're beautiful looking images. It's sort of looking like looking through a dirty window, the ones from 10 or 20 years ago, you know, when you look at the old CTs. And then if you look at what the radiologists look at, which is on those nicer screens that, that we've got, it's sort of almost like someone's finally wiped the screen for you so you can see what you're looking at. So, yeah, I mean, the precision of the imaging has increased enormously. Interestingly, there was a little experiment that we went through over the last couple of months with no contrast in the ED because of a shortage. And I don't think it made any difference, to be honest, but it changed our stroke protocols, made us think a little bit more about ordering contrast. One of the problems at a place like the Alfred where uh, we work, is you've got so much technology that you can just dial up that people use it. And I'm not sure they always use it appropriately. So what this study shows is you're unlikely to miss, very unlikely to miss a fatal aneurysm uh, by doing a, a good plain CT. If you add in a CT angio and a uh, MRI, which is 
almost the protocol of a place like the Alfred, uh, you will pick up other things. And then you've got this problem because you've got a micro aneurysm, one to two millimetres. You've got a, maybe a little bit of blood that wasn't detected. And then what are you going to do? Does that make any difference to the patient? The reality is we're not seeing a lot of people turn up at the coroners. I'm not aware of, it will be interesting to look over the last five years, say in Victoria, how many cases there were of sudden death from subarachnoid in, in, in the jurisdictions and how many of them had a multi-slice CT or went to an ED prior to that because I'm not hearing that at all. Uh, which suggests that we're picking most of them up or most of the serious ones. Well, even in this paper, Peter, if you have a look at table two, I mean, the ones that were missed all had, for the most part, very positive outcomes. Yes. So I guess what I'm saying is this paper shows that lumbar puncture is basically dead, uh, apart from delayed presentations of more than 24 hours. It, it also raises the question of whether our over-investigation may, may be creating problems that we don't want. And you know, from an evidence-based point of view, we do have to question our colleagues in stroke as to what they're actually finding. It, it reminds me a lot of the prostate cancer argument. I know they're very different parts of the body, but, you know, we pick up small lesions, we terrify the patient, and then that patient has to live with the sword of Democles hanging over their head for the next 20 or 30 years. And do we actually save any patients from uh, catastrophic hemorrhage. You know, it, it does raise a lot of questions in my mind. Yeah, absolutely agree, Peter. And I think one of the other things that's changed alongside the improvement in technology uh, in the last decade is the willingness that we have for organising contrast studies. You know, particularly for patients who have a differential diagnosis that includes stroke, there is a very low threshold now for organising some contrast imaging alongside the initial non-contrast brain, which even in my personal experiences, I've ident uh, identified some of these, you know, incidental findings and, and other clinical findings which are unlikely to be of consequence for that particular patient, i.e. overdiagnosis. So I, I think we, you know, we constantly need to bear in the back of our mind our resource stewardship and thinking about the potential benefits, but all, also the potential harm of doing any particular investigation. So if a patient comes in with you know, the classic sudden onset headache, would you actually, if the CT brain on clot is normal, would you actually go ahead and do a CT angio, Peter and Rob? Regardless, you know, ignoring nowadays we have no contrast or we have shortage of it, would you actually do it yourself or you'll just have a sort of like um, informed decision making with the patients? I think it depends a lot on the story. I, I'm, I'm quite happy to screen out, you know, someone like say with a migraine or something and you think I oh, better exclude an aneurysm. That sort of patient I'm quite happy just to use a plain CT on. If, in fact, it was a classic sort of thunderclap headache and, you know, the patient was, you know, potentially compromised in some way, I, I would do a CTA. Knowing, I guess, that I will miss a, a very small number of aneurysms and I guess the it's really a, a backside covering thing, but I think this study sort of, re, as Rob says, reinforces our ability to not over-investigate. Um, so we can say to the patient, the risk is extraordinarily low. There could be a small aneurysm, but, you know, uh, case series has shown that this is very unusual. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much, Peter and Rob. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Bertha. Look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Have a good day.